before we get to today's episode, we are doing a little bit of a contest. Way back from episode seven, Taking My Parents to Burning Man, the only episode we've ever had with two storytellers at once. They were shooting a documentary about, well, you guessed it, Taking My Parents to Burning Man. Now, after its theatrical run and a whole ton of awards, you can watch it just about anywhere, iTunes, Amazon, or Honest to God DVD. I've got three digital codes and one grand prize DVD to give away. If you want one, all you have to do is follow the Laps podcast on Twitter or Facebook and tweet or share your favorite story from the show. Anyone you like, just be sure to tag the Laps podcast so that I know that you did. More details at thelaps.org, or if you want the best possible odds you can get, you can help support the show at patreon.com slash thelaps. All the usual extras apply, bonus minisodes, early episode downloads, but I have an extra DVD copy of Taking My Parents to Burning Man just for one lucky patron. Contest closes Sunday, August 16th. Go get her. Contest aside, hello everybody. Welcome to the very first Best of the Laps. I have had a lot of new listeners, people who love the show, that maybe haven't dug through some of the archives, either because maybe the title didn't jump out or they just haven't had the time, but there are some really, really good stories back there. This is an opportunity for me to remaster them. That and I need just the tiniest vacation from marathon story editing so that I don't find myself waking up in a cozy padded room. (laughs) So I'm telling you, honest to God, I don't have a favorite episode. I don't have a favorite anything. That's not how I work. Not food, not movies, not podcasts. I like variety, you know, the spice of life. For this best of, the listening order you're going to hear is not presented in best to worst. It is purely about variety. The only rule I'm going to say is that right now, just the first year qualifies. So as phenomenal as, say, His My Arms was, or stories like Cool Running, or any of the other more recent stuff, they are out. That and none of my personal stories are allowed. Though if you do listen to the episode, I Made This, interestingly, it is one of the least downloaded episodes. I think because maybe people just assume it's a making of episode, and, well, it goes some places you might not expect. To start, I'm going to run our first year anniversary story, featuring a woman who swore up and down she did not have much to say. Here's Lynn otherwise known to me, and now many more, as mom. This is The Lapse. In the fall of 2000, my mother Lynn was living the dream. Her very own business, the friendly neighborhood consignment store. I spent the first year basically renovating the store and taking down center walls and changing where the fitting rooms were and stuff because I wanted to have all my sight lines open. I have a really good memory for things and for faces and... Yeah, if something didn't look right, I would necessarily know that somebody had walked out with something. A consignment store, if you're not familiar, is kind of like upscale thrift. Mom takes donations, but she also has clients, and those clients make a share off whatever they choose to donate. One of these donations... It was one of the most expensive items I had in the store, so I wanted to make sure that I kept my eye on these, right? A very, very expensive pair of Harley-Davidson cowboy boots in black suede. So I had them like on a window ledge behind the cash desk and then in the window. They're an eye catcher. The kind of item that says, hey, this ain't your mama's consignment store. Well, except for, never mind. The boots get a lot of looks, especially by this one fellow who's beginning to make mom a little bit wary. He's real scrawny, emaciated even. With really busy eyes, you know? And he would walk back and forth and back and forth across and look in the window and look at the window. He never really came in, though. And then one day, just because I was doing a window change, I decided to take these boots, and I put them on a shelf. And that's when he came in. In less than five minutes, these boots were gone. 
I went running to the door, and I looked down the street, and he's already beelining it. If somebody steals something, I'm not really responsible for it. But I felt so bad that I actually paid these people out their portion. And I thought, you know what, you little bugger, if I ever see you again... Mom keeps an ashtray outside the store. Never really empties it. The homeless population, dense as it is, usually bums the butts. One day in particular, she's having a smoke outside, and this guy starts digging through the ashtray. Mom pauses for a moment. I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, I never forget a face. That's that same bugger that ripped me off. Hey, he says, seemingly noticing her. You want to split these, or, uh... Mom clicks her tongue. You know what, man? Why don't you just have a cigarette? She knows it's him, but this guy's seen better days. He might not even remember it was her he stole from. So, she lets him go. But the cat came back the very next day. And the next day. And actually, the day after that. See, Mom doesn't say anything. She's mostly just looking for answers. So, one day, she asks him. What's your story? Come on, you got some kind of story going on. Like, what do you want? Meth. You know, speed, whatever. Well, how long have you been doing that? Yeah, about, um, 20 years. 20 years? 20 years? You're looking you're not fucking dead. Mom pokes and prods, leaning whatever she can about the man's life. His name is Ross, and you guessed it, Ross is homeless. What he calls a binner. Wait, what's a binner? Spinning is when they dive into donation bins, also the garbage bins, and some of the stuff they come up with is pretty amazing. And a lot of them can, like, furnish a home with some of these things. Occasionally, when the soup kitchen down the street closes, Mom will give Ross a bit of food. In exchange... They would bring me gifts. Really weird stuff. Anything shiny. He would bring me, like, a piece of a broken zipper. Sometimes he would stand at the other side of the cash desk and start taking things out of his pants, the crotch of his pants, and he would line up things like a hammer, screwdriver, nail polish. He'd lay them out and he would ask me, How much for this one? I don't know where this stuff came from. Certain little things I would take from him because he would feel offended if I didn't. Sometimes, though, well, Mama has this stool, 50s style, real classic diner look. Hey, Ross. If you ever come across another one of these, can you let me know? Before the store closed that night, along he comes on his bike with his wagon trailing behind him, right? And he comes and he gives me the stool. Identical to the one that I had. Turns out, Ross has a bit of a reputation. Some of this stuff, it's not from a bin. He was known as the fastest fingers in town. Everybody knew this guy. He was banned from every establishment. I was probably the only one that let him into my store. I let him use the bathroom. Ross may not be stealing from her, but she still has a bit of a theft problem. So she relocates the fitting rooms, moves them to the front, then changes the doors to curtains so she can see their feet. Sometimes they just whip open the curtains. I'm closing now. Ross looks the new place over. When he asks why she moved the fitting rooms, she tells him. I I can't stand people stealing from me. And I explained to him, look, it's different when you steal from a corporation, but if you steal from a private business, you're hurting that person. A moment of recognition seems to flash through Ross's eyes. He only nods. He used to stand there and stare at me from the other side of the counter and say, you're so beautiful. 
I wish I had someone in my life like you. I would poke him, actually poke him with one of those yardsticks and say, you know, you better stay on your side of the counter or I'm going to whack you with this. Then he started calling me mom. And I said, don't call me mom. Don't call me mom. His mom, my mom, regardless, Ross puts the word out on the street. No shoplifting from my mom's store. And guess what? It stops. Almost completely. Until winter, anyway. Ross is missing. Normally I'd see him maybe sometimes every day, sometimes not for a couple of days. And then all of a sudden I get this phone call. Ross is in prison. Then he said to me, you know, can you send me 20 bucks? I'm like, well, I don't normally do this kind of thing. You know, me being hard of hearts, I did send him 20 bucks. He would spend every single winter in jail because that was the only place he'd get three meals a day. Essentially, Ross is committing crimes on purpose just to stay warm. Mom seems to remember. Yeah, that sounds about right. I did see him walk out of the pawn shop carrying a stereo system. And he wasn't running. Ross actually sends mom letters. They're full of spelling mistakes, and the writing often ventures outside the margins, but they're heartfelt. Thanking her for everything, checking up on the store. A full three months go by before he's let out. The sunken cheeks and the beady eyes and the skinny, scrawny body. This guy appears in my doorway, and he looks good. He's clean the whole time he's in prison. He's been working out in prison and everything. He looked really healthy, so I took a Polaroid picture of him, and he was so proud of it. I put it on my bulletin board. He was like, look, I've got muscles, because he's doing push-ups, right? Ross's birthday rolls around. He's doing so well, Mom figures, you know what? He deserves a celebration. So her and her friend jaunt him across the street to a restaurant, and he is very clearly nervous. He'd never been in a sit-down restaurant. Ever. Excuse me, says the maitre d'. He's looking at Ross. He's not allowed in here. That puts Mum's back a little up. Never mind, he's with us. So we decided to sit in the outdoor patio. It might take Ross a little getting used to. He doesn't know how to sit still in his chair, half on the patio, half on the gravel. But eventually, as the conversation begins to flow, so does he begin to settle. Mom, I just want you to know, I've done a lot of things, stolen a lot of things, but you... I would never, ever steal anything from you. And I looked at him, and I said, Harley Davidson boots, black suede, size 7, silver spurs. The chair actually fell backwards, and he landed in the gravel, and we both picked him up on each side and sat him back down. And he looked at me and he says, to, he goes, you knew? Why didn't you ever say anything about this? She looks in point blank. I figured that you needed them more than I did. Ross has been out of prison for a few days now. He still comes by the store to pitch his wares. But today, he's offering something different. Mom looks from the item back up to Ross. It didn't last. He actually clicked a pack of meth across the counter. 
And I looked at it and I said, well, what's that? And he said, that's for you. That's all I can give you. I don't want it. Don't ever do this to me again. Ross's face suddenly twists. What do you know? You have no idea what it's like out there. You know what, honey? You'd be surprised because I know exactly what it's like. Been there, done that. If you want to come and visit me, that's fine. You see people in the store, you don't come in. And he never did. Ross's addiction comes back full tilt. He still comes by the store, and they still treat each other well, but it's not the same, and it becomes less and less frequent. Another Canadian winter rears its head, and again, Ross seeks the shelter of prison. Mom waits for a letter, but nothing. At the same time, she's broke. She can't afford to keep the store running anymore. It shuts down permanently in 2004. It must have been really heartbreaking for him to come by and realize that there was nobody there anymore. As the years pass, my mom's store is gutted, repainted, and replaced by something else. She keeps an eye out whenever she's downtown for Ross, but there's no sign of him. Frankly, she thinks he's dead. I went out to get some gas one day. I saw this guy with a bunch of shopping carts, little tiny guy. Ross! Hey! Hey, Ross, she says. Ross, it's me. Mom. Remember? He didn't know who I was. That's how far gone he was. This poor person who was very much unloved and very screwed up. I still have his picture. That was my mother, ladies and gentlemen. For the record, if you want to see Ross's photo, there's a picture of him on the Laps Podcast Instagram. That's at the Laps Podcast. Next, we've got a story that still puts me on edge. The amazing thing is, I still have so much untouched interview, there might actually still be a sequel of sorts to this one. One of the most open, confident speakers I've had on the show. Here comes Linda Fuhrhelm in Odd Couple. Three white pills, two pink pills. Three white pills, two pink pills. Seven-year-old Linda pulls at her mom's dress. Why are you taking so many pills? They're not vitamins. Hush now, Linda's mother says. Mommy just has a headache, leave me alone. Calgary, 1976. He had a way, when he walked into a room, it was like, bam, Dieter's here. Dieter jokes and flirts with one of the girls. Tim and I, a hunting we went. We came across three squaws in a tent. I bucked one and Tim bucked two. I'm Suzanne, she says. He was still married at the time. And would be still, if not for one little bundle of reasons. She was the wild one, that mama mine. Swaddle the baby. Dieter's mother, Marta, gives the newlyweds a lesson. Back in the war, she was a midwife. But Suzanne's a little defiant. Why are you telling me that? Marta shoots Suzanne a very German look. I've raised 460 babies in a year. What have you done? You swaddle the baby because then the baby thinks that it's inside the womb. Dieter actually has seven children. One from his first marriage, two in his second, and four with Suzanne. How many did you take? Wake up! How many did you take? Linda bolts downstairs to her parents' bedroom. She says, Dad. Are you talking about the pills she took earlier? He grabs his daughter by the shoulders. How many did you take? 
I don't know. She took three of these, and then two of these, and then three of these, and then two of these, and I can't remember. I can't keep track. I don't know what happened. Living on a farm leads them almost an hour and a half from the nearest hospital, so Dieter pumps her stomach from home. <coughs> it works. <coughs> Given the cheating and the unplanned pregnancy, Linda's parents found matrimony a little quicker than anticipated. But Dieter had no idea Suzanne was like this. Suzanne's not well. She refuses to talk to a counselor. They had her own Prozac, and then she just stopped taking it. Linda arrives home from school the next day, but for a country farmhouse with four kids, it's quiet. I remember dropping my books at the front door and just running to the side of their bed and touching her hand, and it was cold and it was clammy, and she was in shock. Linda is now all of eight years old. She walks up to her mom and she says, you know, mom, Happiness isn't something that you find on the other side of the hill. The reason the grass there is greener is because the people there love each other and they work at it. It's not something that you can just think that it's just going to be better. And my dad started to cry and he gave me a hug. I understood that my mom kept walking out and it was really frustrating for me. Never understood until I was a grown up that there was so much wisdom in what I said. We used to make them breakfast in bed because there was four of us. It was the only time us kids ever got along because the rest of the time we were always trying to beat each other up. Linda's first awake, so she heads down to the kitchen. We had these huge bay windows that looked out all over the farm. My dad was just standing there and he's staring out these windows. For him to be up before we were on a Saturday morning to watch cartoons was pretty rare. She takes a seat beside her dad, but he doesn't look up. Where's mom? And he said, I don't know, sweetie. I don't know. It's a whole week before anyone knows. Dieter gets a phone call. She had met a guy that had worked on our farm that happened to be an Aussie, and she, she had taken off in the middle of the night and flown to Australia. She missed my birthday that year because she was in Australia. It was constant. It was a matter of tension, no tension, separation. We're going to try and get back together. Tension, separation. And it, we just constantly lived like that. For some reason, we always got along when our mom wasn't in the picture. They weren't fighting, so we didn't feel the stress, so we just stopped fighting. And all of us kids would just get along. Either way, one thing's for sure. Something is wrong with mom. Mom and I used to make patterns, and I knew that my mom had Barbie patterns in this drawer. So I'm digging in the drawer, and I find this big leather bag in the back. And I was like, oh, it must be in this one. And I picked it up, and it was really heavy. And I opened it. And I found the revolver. Linda's now 12 years old. The kids live with Dieter on the farm, while Suzanne lives in her own cabin across town. That said... It was their anniversary. So Dieter plans a visit. Linda's sister, Diana, tags along. Dad always had to go with one of his children to make sure that she was sane. So wherever he went, he made sure that it wasn't like a he said, she said. Diana got the short straw today, and Diana had to go. Diana hangs out downstairs while her parents talk things over. But upstairs, their voices are getting louder. So Diana goes to check on them. And Diana was halfway up the staircase. Suzanne is pointing her revolver at Dieter. Dieter grabs Suzanne by the arm. He shoves her hand in the air. And it pointed at Diana, and Diana dove down the stairs. The gun veers dangerously, left, then right. Finally, Dieter wrenches the gun away from her. Don't you dare take a step towards me. You have a six-foot-two man who is now 220 pounds holding a gun. But he still had the wherewithal to say, I'm not going to use it. Suzanne looks strangely satisfied. 
The cabin was still being built, and there was a balcony on the other side. So mom opened the door to where the balcony should have been, but there was no balcony yet, and jumped off. About six months go by. I was doing my grade seven homework, my science homework. Anybody else want to get that? Peter's about an hour or so into town with their housekeeper, so it's just the kids. Linda picks up. Hello? Linda, honey, where, where are your sisters? They're here. What's wrong? Listen to me, honey, carefully, okay? Your mom's on her way right now with a gun. She's going to kill the four of you here there. You need to take... What? Listen, your mom's not well. You need to get to your sister's house, okay? Can you do that? Uh, yeah, she says. Yeah. Together, the four of them sprint across the farmland. Their half-sister has a house on the other side of the property. We locked all the doors, which is rare because we live in the country and nobody ever did that. And I continued doing my grade seven science homework. And so, they wait. And it got late. Night fell, and Dad should have been home by now. A sense of dread closes in. What's going on here? Oh, it must be Dad. The car doesn't stop at their stepsister's house. He would have known to turn down the other driveway. He keeps going to their family house. And then they stopped and they turned around. And at that point, all of us kids were on the ground with our hands over our heads, like a bomb situation where we're like, somebody's going to shoot us, right? Police, please open the door. And they asked to speak to my sister's husband, and they took my sister outside. But they put my sister in the back of the paddy wagon, and we're like, what's going on? Linda's brother spies out the back window. Hey, he says. Jan's crying. That's their half-sister's husband. Jan's crying. And I was like, that's not right. Why would he cry? So Linda peeks out the window. Now her sister's beside him. And they were both crying. After they've had a moment, they come back inside. Guys, we have something to tell you. And we stopped her and we said, we know. We had been prepared for this our entire life, that there was a matter of time before it was going to break and, and one of them was going to kill one of them. The cops came in and we said, well, aren't you going to charge her? Do you have her in custody? But the cop says, what? What are you talking about? Our mother, she says. Do you not know that she did this? I'm sorry, but your father, your father was in an accident. He died in a head-on collision. They hit black ice less than five miles from home and broke his neck. It was over. Within a week, moms moved back in, this time with their boyfriend. I think there's a, per- a certain time in your life where you just go through the paces, where you're just like, there's nothing I can do about this. And I just accept it. And my sister rebelled. Within the first year of my dad dying, my sister had gotten pregnant. It was weird growing up because we always said, one of us is going to end up six feet under and the other one was going to end up in jail for doing it. In trying to get closure from the only parent I have that is still alive, my mom doesn't really want to talk about it. And when I do talk to her about it, I'm like, Mom, do you remember that time you pointed a gun at Diana and Dad? What is the rationale? And she goes, yeah, I can't believe that happened. I 
broke my favorite watch. That was Linda Fuhrhelm. What we haven't touched on, I'm going to publicly hint at here so I can make a promise to go back to it. Linda's father actually grew up as an orphan in World War II in the Hitler Youth. Probably something to revisit, right? Now we're going to take a jaunt all the way back to episode two. Marshall Whitlock and I were best buds in university, and I think when you build that kind of rapport with somebody, the storytelling between you always comes across natural and unforced. I've remastered it here using my newfound abilities, so it sounds even better than ever. Here is Marshall Whitlock, a virgin too lucky. Marshall Whitlock was a virgin. Well, everyone's a virgin at one point. He's a handsome guy, cleans up well, a menagerie of tattoos from shoulder to wrist. On his forearm, it reads, Philippians 4.13, which means I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So what a virginity matter? The Bible quite clearly says no sex before marriage. Uh, I'll let you know a little secret. It was more like, yeah, no sex before marriage because no one wants to have sex with me. Marshall was more interested in the other pillars of teenage boyhood. Playing video games, smoking weed, skateboarding. But I wasn't too interested in, like, the things that girls like. <laughs> was I interested in girls? Yeah, totally. I was just a little wimp as well. Marshall saw himself as a rebel, but not a solitary one. His group of friends was actually quite big, a hodgepodge of punks and metalheads. Oh, God, it's another punk party or a metal party, and turns out I know a bunch of people there as well. I don't even listen to punk or metal. It's my whole fucking life It's going to punk parties, and I hate punk. <laughs> Q North Vancouver, 2006. Nearly 40 of Marshall's friends huddle around a bonfire, oh, trying to keep warm in the midwinter weather. John, nice patches. Marshall eyes the group. There's at least one girl, he thinks. Maybe. Maybe she likes me. She's pretty attractive. Emma. He could sense her, eyeing him from within the crowd. The evening goes long, and the fire, along with the party, begins to die. Locals to North Van can get home, but transit back downtown has stopped for the night. I come up with the bright idea because my dad is out of town. Hey, everyone can come sleep in my house. There's like nine people plus myself. So they all pile into my house. There's two girls in my bed, two people in my dad's bed, like people sleeping on the couch downstairs. People sleeping on the floor. At one point, I'm downstairs I'm downstairs getting a drink, and I, I hear these footsteps, and I just turn, and there's this girl, this brunette girl, and she's like, the crazy eyes going, and she's speed walking towards me, and she just like slams her face into mine, and we start making out. Through no fault of his own, Tongue is now in Marshall's mouth. They move the action upstairs. Since both beds are already occupied, they find a spare room adjacent, but before they can continue, Marshall, what are you doing? knocking on the wall. As soon as it began, it was over. The group reconvenes downstairs to drink and smoke and rally the party one last time. Marshall, several more drinks in, heads upstairs to relieve himself. And I don't notice that this girl's followed me up to the washroom, and she sneaks in before I get the door closed, and after no time at all, we're both fully disrobed. But there was a problem. He knew it. He could feel it approaching the back of his mind. And then Emma shot first. Oh, do you have a condom? I had to do it as well. I was like, oh, I need a condom. This is what you do, right? This is like protocol, protocol, protocol. Buy the book. I've never done this before. This is what my gym teacher told me in sex ed. Condom. 
Marshall turns the bathroom cabinet upside down. His dad was single. Surely somewhere Mr. Whitlock had a box of condoms. Nothing. It was time for plan B. I live right like a half a block from a 7-Eleven. I'll be back. He's so drunk, he doesn't even bother to tie his shoes. He enters the 7-Eleven. He browses a bit, trying to remember where the condoms are. How is he supposed to know? He'd never needed them before. I'm pretty sure I had made, like, water balloons out of condoms before. But I don't think I ever bought a pack of condoms to make water balloons. At last, he's found them. He smacks them down on the counter, triumphant. I'll take these condoms, sir. Tucking the condoms into his pocket, Marshall begins the short trek back home. Not a minute later, a haggard-looking man approaches him. Hey, buddy, you got the time? Oh, no, sorry. He turns to walk away, but a second man approaches. Oh, hey, bud, you got a light? No, sorry. I don't have either of those. I don't have the time or a light. I have a lady waiting for me. Marshall skips to his own tune, ignoring the men. But the two men, they don't share Marshall's enthusiasm. They're both walking his way. One of them has crossed the street, barring the path in that direction. And even though I was hammered, I remember looking behind me thinking, oh, shit. And then immediately got behind me starts running. Marshall breaks into a sprint, but I didn't tie my shoes. He trips drunkenly. The first man tackles him, pulls him to the ground. Don't move. Marshall reaches for his pocket. There's a multi-tool inside, a knife he can use to defend himself. I pulled it out like I was going to use it. But he can't do it. Because if I had used it, it would have caused to kill me. His other buddy from across the street runs up, and I just remember like him just trying to kick me, and I'm blocking my face. And then I'm out. Marshall drifts. I was in a room with all my friends, and they're all sitting around me laughing. And then it was like, just like that, I was just awake. It was like 3.30 in the morning. I was lying on the frost on the grass, not 20 meters from my front door. And I just have no idea why I'm there. In a daze, Marshall limps towards the front door and opens it. And I like touch my face, and I look at my hands covered in blood. The room is horrified, but if they've got questions, Marshall's got just as many. The thing I say is, why was I outside? The girl that I was with earlier is like, um, I don't know. Gives this confused look, like shrugs her shoulders. Wait, you just left? You didn't tell us where you were going. Nobody knows anything. Don't worry about it, they tell him. You were drunk. So they're cleaning me off, and slowly it starts to come back. Number one, I got jumped. Okay, that's why I was outside. Second thing, oh no, they stole my wallet. Number three, and the most important one, I'm not gonna get laid. God doesn't want me to have sex. That was what I was thinking. On the bright side. What's funny is after they beat me up, they took my Leatherman, they took my wallet, but I stole the condoms in my jacket and I'm gonna use <laughs> Yeah, made some sweet ass water balloons out of those as well. A year goes by, maybe longer. I'm never going to have sex ever. That was it. I was going to have sex, and then he took it away from me. That bastard. Marshall was down, but he wasn't out. He'd been on a couple dates. Some successful, some not. But at least his feet were getting wet. He's over one night at a small gathering. There was not very many people. The house was, like, mostly empty. And it was my buddy's birthday. I'm not sure why exactly. It was just, like, a weird energy. It was, like, an electricity in the air in that place. Oh, God, please do not use that. I don't want anyone to hear me say there was an electricity in the air. There was a lot of, like, girls kissing each other. 
Marshall, feeling thoroughly out of place at this point, excuses himself to go to the store. One of the girls grabs him and kisses him. He's taken off guard. No, he says, really, I'll be back. And when he gets back, it's quiet. Too quiet. Like, what's going on? One of my friends, like, leans up from behind the couch, like, at the back of the living room, and then, like, this other girl leans up, and they're like, obviously, we're doing something back there. I'm like, okay, well, that's what's going on. There was enough people left that people could just pair off after that. I just figured, I was like, oh, that's one of these parties where I'm just going to watch other people make out with each other. As he's walking down the hall, the door to his right flings open. There are two girls, laughing, stumbling around, cackling to each other. One of them catches Marshall's eye, and then together, they size him up. Before he says anything, they grab him. There was nothing innocent about it. This had to be karma. Clothes come off, the kissing starts, and Marshall, in his very first, finds himself sliding home headfirst into a threesome. Just a few minutes later, the door slams open. It's another of Marshall's drunk punk buddies, and he's not about to be left out. Sometimes, karma's a bitch. This task is too important for you to handle, Marshall. Don't you worry about it. Boy, it just shoves me over, like that kind of thing. He's trying, trying to concentrate, trying to get through this, trying to lose his virginity. But once again, the bedroom door slams open. Five people just stuck their head in the door and fucking like applauded me. They actually were like, yay, Marshall. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I just had a, I only had a pillow. It was the worst. And they like, it doesn't matter how much I yelled, they just made them laugh more. Mercifully, one of his friends shuts the door. But with the whole party as witness to his innocence lost, Marshall is just about done. I didn't enjoy it. I did not enjoy it in the slightest. In fact, it was probably the worst way I could probably have done it. It wasn't my idea. I got like manhandled into doing it. Like I was like shoved around. I don't know. It was just like bound to happen. Just like alcohol and these, and these girls that liked sex. I think the fact that I was a virgin also made it like I was like a prize. Like if it was just any other guy, it wouldn't matter. But it was like, we'll do Marshall a favor. <laughs> could have been anyone. Could have, could have been anybody. She had a little black dress and high heel shoes. Her lips were cherry red. That was Marshall Whitlock. Personally, I prescribed the three strikes rule. Your first time ever up the bat should hardly count as a strike, you know? So far as I'm concerned, Marshall, you've got, at most, two balls. Speaking of dad jokes, <laughs> no, no, this segue makes no sense. We're just going to jump to the story, the podcast digest called One of Their Favorites Across All Podcasts of 2014. It comes from a fellow who reached out to me having never listened to the show. This is a situation I can say none of us wants to be in. This is George DeYoung with The Good Guy Defense. It seemed like slow motion. He flew, and I noticed that he wasn't wearing a helmet. When he came down, he didn't move. I thought he was dead. George has been living in Thailand for about two years. He was on his way to Pai, a small tourist town along Thailand's northern rim. There was no ambulance in the small town, I knew that. The police came and they picked up the guy. They grabbed his arms and legs and they just heaved him into the back of a truck. George doesn't speak Thai. He's originally from Canada, 
Only one of the policemen, a tourist officer, speaks English. But strangely, nobody questions George about the accident. Instead, they haul him around town, to the police station, to the mechanic to get his bike fixed, and then to the hospital to visit the victim. It was horrible. I saw the guy, they wheeled him past me and his wife was there crying. It was about maybe an hour since we'd left the scene of the accident. But the officers still aren't done with George. They take him back to the scene of the accident. By then it was getting dark. There were just police cars everywhere. Before I could get out of the car, a policeman came over, opened the door. I had a small vest pocket on my vest and he unzipped the zipper, reached in and he held a, a pill in his hand. The cop's English might be poor, but there's one word he manages. Methadone. Or yabba, literally translated, the madness drug. And while George's tie isn't that great, he gets the gist. Where'd you put the stuff? The cop escorts George to the side of the road and motions to a patch of grass. Pick it up. And he pointed to a bag. More pills, more yaba, even a joint for good measure. None of which George has ever seen in his life. Another guy had come over with a, funny, a Kodak camera. <laughs> you know, the kind that makes an instant picture. The guy took a picture of me with the bag in my hand and that I figured, well, that's it. George sits on the cell's concrete floor. It's been eight hours with no interrogation. I said, is the guy okay? And uh, the policeman told me he was dead. The interrogation, like a hamster wheel, goes nowhere. It's one big circle, over and over and over. Well, if you admit it, it'll be a lot easier. Most tourists, if they're there for any length of time, they understand that Bribes are just a part of life in Thailand. You give them 5,000 baht instead of taking you to the police station. Say, says George, this time to another officer. The victim, the guy on the bike, is he dead? I just sort of sensed that they were lying. This officer shakes his head. No, he's in Chiang Mai, he's in a hospital and back injuries and all of that. They were lying. The mention of money was never brought up at all but I knew that that was what they were looking for. But being set up with the drugs and all of this, I, it's just like I, I, I just, I never did. George shivers in the morning air. It was about six o'clock in the morning. A policeman took me out to a, a truck. The police truck, which is actually a pickup truck, is bound for Mehong Sung, home to one of the country's largest prisons. That's where George will await trial. Two other passengers await their departure. Must have been in their 60s, 70s, I guess. He can't help but notice their getup, full winter jackets. In northern Thailand, it gets quite cold. I only had a t-shirt on. It was really, really cold. George climbs into the bed of the truck. Towards the front, the cops cuff him to a set of hooks. The drive between Pai and Mehansan is really high. You're going uphill for 200 kilometers. It's like almost straight up at times. While the cuffs keep him from falling out, it's hardly much solace. The hills are so steep, strung up by the wrist, he slips, swinging like a pendulum. Swinging from one side to the other. He tries to use his free hand to brace himself. Because I didn't want to be just hanging by one arm. I ended up losing grip because my hands were cold and my wrist was starting to cut. And I started hollering. Stop, stop, 
Stop the truck. Finally, they came to a stop sign somewhere. The cop loosens the cuffs, just a titch. It'll be two more hours before they reach Mayong Song. George's cell, if you can call it his, is about the size of a master bedroom, minus the bed and shared with 20 other people. His possessions, along with whatever money he had, were confiscated back in Pai. They said something about making sure that there was no speed on the bills or something. Only one of his cellmates, a Swedish man, speaks English. He was there for going on five years. The Swedish man does a tally for him. He says, you had a joint? That's six months, right there. How much yabba did you have on you? If you're seven, you're okay, but if you have eight, it's like you're dealing. George thinks, thinks, thinks. One, two, three, four, five. There were seven in the bag, plus the one in his pocket. There were just enough. Eight. Eight pills. Which means George could be looking at five years. He pleads with the guards for a call home, but either they don't speak English or they're not interested. While the prisoners are allowed to send letters, without any money, he can't afford postage or paper. Even if he could, the postal service out of the prison, let alone overseas, is about as speedy as you would expect. In 10 days, George will stand trial. Until then, he bides his time. I was in the cell where whenever new prisoners came in, they would put them in the cell that we were in. Burmese would often cross the border trying to get into Thailand. So just about every day, there were new prisoners coming in. And every night, I would just hope that there wouldn't be too many because sometimes it would be so packed. I mean, the floor was just covered with people. One of the new transfers, a Korean guy, gets caught with a little weed. And in Korea, you don't do drugs at all, right? I mean, drugs are taboo. So taboo, in fact, the penalty for possession in South Korea is up to five years. For dealing, five to life. They told me he was going to be executed for a joint of marijuana. He believed them. It was just so crazy because he took it so seriously. The guy's so scared he tries to escape, jumps from the second floor, breaks his ankle. On day 10, George stands before the Thai judge. He thinks, I should have expected this. I didn't have a clue what was going on. Nobody could speak English. And they kept on asking me to sign things, and I wouldn't. I just wouldn't sign, because I couldn't read it, of course. Every 10 days, George goes to court, can't speak the language, and is told, sign on the dotted line. It's like Groundhog Day. After a while, I started signing things. I didn't have a clue, but every time they'd bring a sheet in and I'd just sign it. After more than a month, George catches a break. A group of Christian missionaries visits the prison. One of them started visiting me on a regular basis, a really nice woman, and her English was excellent. Committing his story to memory, the missionary manages to write an email to George's brother. And uh, finally, they got me a lawyer. The only problem was he was in Chiang Mai, which was 300, 400 kilometers away. It's been nearly 90 days since George has been arrested. By Thai law, he can't delay any longer. He has to stand trial and he has to plead his case. Guilty or not guilty. But it's kind of a joke because everybody in the prison told me that if you plead not guilty, they'll make it really, really tough on you. The lawyer's not really trying to prove that you're innocent, but they're trying to make you look like a a good person. Court's in session. I have to plead guilty for this? George's lawyer launches into his cross-examination. 
the good guy defense. So when I said that I had two undergraduate degrees, that was a big plus. The lawyer says, you see, my client must be a good man. Tell me, George, are you also married? I said, well, no. The lawyer puts on his poker face. We had been split up for about 10 years, but he wrote to the judge that I had to get back to Canada because my wife was bipolar. So we made up this big lie, and I was so scared that when I was going before the judge, if anybody would ask me anything in English, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to say. The judge considers this new information, then calls a recess. When they return, George's lawyer has some news. The pill that they found in my pocket was so powerful, that pill alone would have gotten me two years. I, I was really scared at that point. I said, well, you know, t two years for that, possibly five years for the other. But amazingly, the reason for this whole mess, the accident, no charge, so long as George's insurance covers the medical. After an hour, the judge is ready to wrap this up. He needs to know, George DeYoung, how do you plead? So I went up and said guilty, and then he gave me my sentence. And I had no idea what it was. His lawyer sits him down. Congratulations, he says. You're really lucky, you know. Usually they give you at least five years for the yaba, but then he took it down to two years. Oh my God, even two years. I mean, that's better, but I wasn't relieved at all. I mean, three months in a Thai jail, I was just, I just couldn't take anymore. I didn't know what I was gonna do. George's lawyer frowns. This isn't the victory that he thought it was. Well, he says, there is another option. If you pay a fine, you can get out. And the fine wasn't that much. It was like maybe $2,500, $3,000. Also, says the lawyer, you're being deported. 10 days later, George's lawyer takes him to the airport. When we were at the airport, he spoke to a guy behind the counter, and then he said to me, give me a thousand baht. And he gave it to the guy, and he said, you can come back to Thailand if you want now, because it's off the record. Bribes are just a part of life there. Like a policeman in Thailand, if they end up getting a few hundred dollars? It's like a few hundred dollars even is, uh, is worth so much there. I think they thought that I had a, a fair bit of money because I was in Thailand a lot. And a lot of Thai people can't afford to take a vacation anywhere. There's just this assumption that you're rich because you're a Westerner. Like I said, most time people will offer a bribe right off the bat. They were probably quite surprised that I didn't. That was George DeYoung. If you aren't there, George, well, <laughs> hi, I guess. We're going to revisit an episode now that I have had probably more emails about than any other. Just general thank yous for putting into words what uh, many women, too many women, find themselves struggling to communicate. But really, none of that praise should go to me. It, it goes to the amazing Jessie Conweiler and her incredible capacity for finding humor in even the darkest places. Here's Jessie with her story, Meet My Rapist. Jessie Conweiler is a rebel. 
the kind of rebel only earned through an ex-military academy. Tongue ring, dreadlocks, Jewish girl power. I need to go someplace, like, badass. I want to have an experience. Jessie's in college, letting loose, discovering herself. Oh my god, feminism, communism, like all the isms and hand jobs. Which is why her junior year, she'll be studying abroad. For the former, that is. And one of the counselors was like, oh, we have a program in Vietnam. And I was like, done. Basically, for the rest of my life, I'd be able to say, you know, when I was in Nam. It was definitely a huge culture shock. I was like the biggest person there, bigger than all the dudes, some like kosher trek, you know, like trekking through the city. Going out at night and seeing, you know, the fat expats with the, you know, 15-year-old Vietnamese girls. And if you're wondering, they actually don't like to be lectured on third wave feminism. Inside Vietnam, unless you're already knee-deep familiar with Uber, it kind of takes some getting used to. The way to get around in Vietnam is by motorbike. That is, motorbike ride shares. Because every Vietnamese citizen is also actually a potential taxi driver. So long as they're male, anyway. Women, I, I mean, I didn't have any women drivers. Women drove the motorbikes and women rode on the motorbikes. But the thing is, if you're a woman, you're riding side saddle. Like, your legs are crossed to one side of the thing. You're very proper. And I was just like, fuck that. I would hike up my skirt and just, like, spread eagle, like, fuck you guys. I got a tongue ring. Courtesy another few motorbikes, Jesse and her fellow exchange students plan to crash a bar out in the way. You know, just take us to wherever. So they do. Turns out, this isn't a city bar they're being taken to. No, this is textbook middle-of-nowhere stuff way out in the jungle. The bar is mostly dead. Less occupied by locals, more occupied by racist expats. Dude, Vietnamese women are awesome because you fuck them and then you wake up the next morning and they're cleaning your floor. Needless to say, it doesn't take much until Jessie's sad enough. So her and her friend pick a couple bikes at random and venture back through yonder jungle. The really amazing thing about Vietnam is that it's always raining. You know, it's always raining. So there's no point really in drying off because by the time you do, it's just gonna rain again. And this was such a novel thing to me because, you know, I'm in LA. I mean, it's basically like a state of emergency every time it rains here. In Vietnam, it rains, they get wet. They just get wet. Jessie closes her eyes, one amongst the raindrops. The drivers kick past one another, alternately playful game of cat and mouse. Somewhere along the way, their paths diverge. Jesse's friend is no longer in sight. And I was really drunk, but I remember being like, that's really weird. Like, is he lost or something? And then he started to touch me. I'd been taking all these like feminist theory classes and how to empower yourself, intellectualizing, you know, what I would ever do. But like when it was really happening to me, I completely froze. Here's this guy that has all this power over me and he literally weighs like 50 pounds less than me. He didn't speak English and I didn't speak Vietnamese and there wasn't one word exchanged. But I knew that in that moment, if I wanted to stay alive and get out of that jungle, I had to play dead. When it's finally over, Jesse's rapist drives her home 
and my friend is like waiting for me in the middle of the street and he's like fucking pissed. Like he thinks I've just been like fucking off or whatever, I don't know. Her friend hauls her inside. She tells him what happened. I joke that I didn't tip him. I just remember drinking till like the sun came up. And I woke up the next morning and my friend was a wreck. He was ashamed or embarrassed or mad at himself for leaving me or whatever. And I just, in that moment, like, went on autopilot. And for me, autopilot is like, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. You're not a victim. You're okay. You were raped, but it wasn't that bad. You're fine. She's fine. She can prove it. She hooks up with this guy, a sculptor, the next night. Yes, she's got stomach cramps. And yes, she's taking 10 laxatives a day. I just didn't see any correlation. I was fine. I'm okay. A full four months pass. Jessie finishes her studies abroad and heads home. I'm a Jew, so like my after-school activity is therapy. I mean, I told everybody about it. My friends, my teachers, the mailman. I remember I went and saw this dude therapist. I told him, I said, you know, I was just in study abroad and I got raped. And he stood up and he opened his arms and he offered me a hug. I've always been like an overachiever. So like my rape would be no different. It's like, if I'm going to get raped, I'm going to be like the best fucking rape victim, the strongest rape victim ever. It's the following summer. Jessie's living with her roommate, Chelsea, in New York. I was riding on the subway to my internship and all of a sudden my heart just started pounding. At first, it doesn't occur to her. The sights and the smells of Chinatown. And... Like, my vision started getting blurry, and I started to, like, have really scary visions, and my palms were sweating, and I was looking around the train, and it felt like everybody was, like, staring at me and about to, like, haul me off to the loony bin. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack. Like, it feels like you're watching your own death. Her doc writes a prescription. Clonopin. Anti-anxiety. So, you know, I spent, like, the next five years, like... Still maintaining my absolute okayness. 27 years old, some New York City club. I like met this guy and he was perfectly fine. And he's like buying me Merlot and kale salads and we're like doing the bumpity bump, doing the Macarena, ironically. And all of a sudden he slaps me on the ass. I'm a little drunk and I turn around and I'm like, you know, When you slap me on the ass, it reminds me of the time I got raped. I don't know if you've ever seen a dick shrivel inside of a man's body before, but this poor guy. (laughs) I was the only one laughing. Like, all my friends were like, what the fuck are you doing? This is, like, so weird. She brushes it off at first. It was a joke, guys. Whatever. But the next night, she can't help but shake the feeling that something ain't quite right. Dude, my rape happened seven years ago. Why am I not over this shit yet? What is wrong with me? And, and I started having all these questions about like, well, who is this guy? And I started getting really resentful because it's like, this guy fucking raped me. I'm sure he's fine, but I'm here still thinking about it. What more can I do? Like, I've been to therapy. I've talked about it. I've had other relationships. Like, what else can I do to expel this thing? Thus, Meet My Rapist was born. <laughs> A short, satirical film about rape. 
probably the definition of a tough sell. But here it is. It's like Transformers meet striptease. No, I'm just kidding. Meet My Rapist is a satirical dark comedy, and it's about this young, free-spirited Jewish chick named Jessie, and she runs into her rapist at the farmer's market. The film is really about her taking her rapist through the events of her life to kind of show him the effect that he's had on her life. So she takes him to therapy, you know, he comes with her at a job interview, and she, you know, she meets his parents, and all the kind of steps you would take you know, with somebody that you were very intimate with. And the conceit really is that my rapist is probably the most important man in my life. I was really nervous when we put the movie out because I had come out to my family, but I hadn't come out to like my 95 year old grandma on the Upper West Side. Not only did I get raped, but like I'm sitting here making like a f comedy about it. Like it's just is that not like the tackiest shit ever? Like my grandma's like a lady and shit. You know what I mean? Like what's she going to think of me? So I decided to email her the film first. My hands are like shaking as I send the email. And I get a reply like two seconds later. Jesse, I love what you've done with your rape. Like from then on, I was just like, oh my God, like I have my boobies approval. Like it's fucking on. Because the film is so deeply personal, it kind of manages the impossible. It's not offensive. It's funny in the smartest possible way. And it's not just critical praise either. So many emails and letters and messages. I was raped and this is exactly how it is. Or like, my cousin was raped. Or like, I'm a dad of three. And like, when That's like filmmaker orgasm. Like it doesn't get better than that. Please forget it. Sayonara. I'm done. Unless I get raped again. No, I'm kidding, kidding, kidding. Jessie's riding the wave of praise. She's got a big old screening over at New York's Dance Film Festival, and again, cleans up. Cue the after party. I'm super excited because I'm single, and I'm like, it's gonna be all these cute indie festival dudes with their beards and their screenplays, and we're just gonna like power couple it up, and it's gonna be awesome, and like meet me in the jacuzzi. And it was just like I had caution tape all around me, like nobody wanted to get anywhere around me. I noticed the guys would come up to me and be like, you know, I really enjoyed your film, it was really good. But like in this way that was like, good job, slugger. Like I was some like pity case or like victim. One guy like literally straight up bowed to me. I was like, okay, like I'm like the Duchess of Rapesville now. I guess the culmination, I was at this bar and you know, I'm flirting with this guy and all of a sudden I hear, oh my God, you're the rape girl. And this little feminist chick comes up to me and she's like, oh my God, like, I love your rape movie. Tell me all about your rape. And again, like the poor guy I'm flirting with, he's like, I forgot I, my sock, I have to go wash my hair, you know? And it's like, he's gone. Having this title of the rape girl, it's like, I don't, I don't, you know, what are you supposed to do with that? Because I was so open with my work people felt like they could be totally open with me and there was no boundaries. You know, I was never really a fan of small talk anyway, but it's just like, man, like after a certain point, like you just want to talk about the weather. Like I don't want to talk about your suicide or your cat suicide or cancer or, you know, it's just like, oh, hey. For better or worse, the film's a part of Jesse. The only choice she has really is to let the hype subside. That is until the Daily Mail hits. The headline? Conweiler repels men with rape film. 
everything that I had said in the past year since the film came out. Was raped in Vietnam, boom. Took laxatives, boom. Has two therapists, boom. Had an eating disorder, boom. Had trouble getting laid after rape, boom. And I, what have I done? I have shown too much, I've exposed too much, and I sound like a crazy person. And the worst part about it is, is like, I created this monster. I put the film out there, I started talking about it. It's all me. It brought around this, the same question of just like, so now that you've made this film, like, are you okay, you know? And again, that pressure to be like, okay, what is happening and how do I feel about it? Real recent, December 2014. Jessie's getting her wax done. My weekly Chewbacca, I call it. <laughs> and I decided to treat myself to like a pedicure. And I'm like making small talk with them. I'm like, oh, where are you guys from? And this girl looks up at me between my hairy toes and she's like, oh, we're from Vietnam. And I am just like waiting. My God, Vietnam. Am I ever gonna get over Vietnam? And I'm waiting and this panic attack like doesn't come. I'm actually fine. You know, I just didn't even think about it. I'm like, you know, I've been to Vietnam. And they got so excited, you know. This woman asked me, oh, you know, did you like it? And like, she will never be able to understand like how deep that question is, you know. I hold like my red upper lip where my mustache used to be a few seconds ago. And I really think about it. Vietnam and that motorbike and meet my rapist and the rape girl and everything that went into it. And I think about the 20 year old me who really just wanted an experience. And I was like, yeah, dude, I fucking loved it. I did, you know what I mean? Like I always thought that like I had to be strong and that I needed to survive and that I needed to show I was okay. But actually the real strength is being like, I'm not okay and that's okay. It's like so cheesy, but like that has made me who I am. That's brought me like the funniest moments. That's introduced me to so many amazing people. Like it's the rape that keeps on giving, really. That was Jessie Conweiler. If you haven't seen her short film, there's still a link to it in blaps.org's archives or hit up YouTube. Either way, it is probably one of my favorite short films. Make sure you check it out. Gosh. You know, looking at this list, I can't believe the episodes I'm going to be omitting. But I I mean, yeah. If we do everything, this will be a playlist, so we're just going to end on a lighter note. This is the hilarious, wonderful Monica Homburg with one of the worst slash best state stories I've ever heard. It might have nothing to do with Star Wars, but this is The Force. You remember that guy? Asks Monica. You know, the one we passed in the hallway, you said hi and I never did. That guy was cute. What's his deal? Monica's friend, hmms. You mean Leonard? Sure, yeah, I remember, but. You know, he was gay, but he says now he's not. Monica is still 18, only just recently single. Just feeling really down about myself and sad and thinking the ticket would be if I met somebody. Monica bites a fingernail. What do you mean, used to be gay? Monica's place. She sets the table while Leonard has a seat. The night special? A serving of meatballs and bagels. Such an eclectic, classy menu. Despite said menu, the date's all right. 
Nothing electrifying, but they've got some things in common. Monica's a performer, Leonard's a radio DJ. They like the arts and film. Enough for Leonard to say, hey, we should do this again sometime. But, um, just one thing. Can you come over to my place next time? Because your area is really sketchy and I'm scared that my car is going to get stolen. Okay, that sounds good. Second date. Leonard's place. Hello. How are you? Leonard's parents' place. Oh, you must He did live with his parents. He was like 23 or 24. So I was like, okay, that's strange because he didn't warn me about that. I just showed up and then there were these two older people. When I walked into his room, he had six or seven police hats just lined up there. Impressive collection for any cop. But Leonard's not a cop. He was a college radio DJ. Before Monica can query the collection. The phone rang, and this red light began to circulate through the room. A police siren, minus the siren. That he had hooked up to circulate whenever the phone rang. And then he says... Hey, do you want to see something cool? Leonard places a palm over the phone's receiver, puts a finger to his lips. He stretches the phone towards Monica. My friend, I am out of tomorrow's. Either you do the pickup and you pay me or I find another guy. Who did you think I am, dude? I'm just going to, like, walk down the street with a bunch of junk in my pockets. An unusual device spirals off the base. It's a wiretap. He was tapping into a live conversation that was happening at the time we had landlines. And his neighbor was having what, strangely at the time, sounded pretty surreptitious. Yo, man, I'm done talking about this. You find someone else who cares, because I don't. They can listen to your crap. At which point, my date chimes up into the call and says, There are other people listening! <laughs> Leonard's strutting his grin. This is absolutely supposed to impress me. I can tell you that although it didn't, I did not want to leave and realize 100% that my life was not going well. I was really just trying to get over that feeling of just feeling broken. And I give him a blowjob. I had been with only a few guys at the time that I'd done that with, but I thought I was pretty good. I was getting a lot of feedback that I wasn't from him. If he had been, you know, just instructive, maybe that would have been all right, but he was like frustratedly instructive. I remember looking at the clock. I could see those red lights, those red numeric digital lights. I was just getting more and more crushed as this went on. Finally, eventually, he gets there. I'm really sorry that that didn't work for you. Leonard gives her a genial pat on the back. Good game, that kind of thing. And then he said, it was really good, actually. I, you know, during it, I thought of Joey from Blossom blowing me, and that worked. (laughs) Whoa, unbelievable. (laughs) Leonard, gentleman that he is, offers Monica a ride home. But he stops short. What was that? And I hadn't heard anything. It wasn't like there was a loud noise or scream or even a vague sound. I hadn't heard anything. Shh. Leonard strains to listen. Stay here. 
So he books it down the street and goes to this parking lot that is probably a block away, not far and not out of my view either. At which point he proceeds to have a fight with no one. He was doing a complete stage fighting thing. He was he was punching and then he was getting hit, which is amazing because he wasn't winning a lot of that fight. If you'll catch me on this reference, Leonard's pulling a Tyler dirt. Clearly he didn't need to impress me because he had just made the Joey comment. So there was no good reason for this, but even if he was planning it, certainly he should have planned it out of eye shot. Ultimately, Leonard is triumphant. He marches back towards Monaco. Get in the car. We're going to need reinforcements. And I'm just standing there, kind of frozen and contemplating. Because there's a part of me that was just fascinated by all this. I couldn't imagine if I had, like, hitchhiked or got a cab or anything if I had just left there that I would meet anybody stranger than him. Suddenly, Leonard bursts at the front door. Told you to get in the car, come on. Dent, they're right behind us. Better hold on to your seat, lady. He is driving like something from Dukes of Hazard. Leonard fishtails wildly around the corner. He veers into oncoming traffic. Behind him, a car honks its horn. Shit, they are on us tonight. Whether or not Leonard actually believes it, he puts on a convincing act. No stop signs, no red lights. This chase goes on for nearly 10 minutes. Look. Backup's here. And I turn around and there's a regular car behind us. I think at this point, I somehow got the urge not to humor him. I'm not this dumb. I think I have to point out that I'm not this dumb. So I said, well, it's just a regular car. Yeah, babe, I know. It's an unmarked car. Okay, but how can you tell? Because I'm with the force, that's why. I'm so fucked up that I'm just sitting there and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna uh, wait till this is over. Leonard has a discussion with the car. Just the car, since there's nobody in it. He gives himself a knowing nod. Just another day on the job. Maybe he thought you could moonlight. You could be a cop and also be a college radio DJ. I think I would have progressed as a human being faster if I had just been like, hey, you know what? That's fucked up and I'm not doing this. Don't worry. I got our backs. We're good. Hey, uh, it's a tough job sometimes. Sorry if I scared you back there. And uh, then he drove me back home and dropped me off. And I went out with him again. That was Monica Homburg. And this was the best of the laps. Number one. We'll be back with a brand new episode before you know it. Once I've had three and a half seconds to catch my breath. If you want to win a copy of Taking My Parents to Burning Man, remember, hit up the laps.org for details. Uh, you should also listen to that episode because I just couldn't fit it in here. 
if you think this show is something special and you want to support what I do and, and, and be a part of that, you can do so at patreon.com slash the laps for as little as a buck a month. I do run this out of my bedroom closet across my heart. So <laughs> in fact, uh, there'll be a documentary about just that going up not long from now. Again, thank you to Jesse Brennan, who's done nearly all of the transcription for these episodes. Courtesy of Patreon, thank you to this episode's executive producers, Richard Gortz and Jill Galvez. My name is Kyle Jest, and this was The Lapse. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>